Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Ray Scott about his new book, The NBA in Black and White, The Memoir of a Trailblazing NBA Player and Coach. Ray played nine seasons in the NBA and two in the ABA. He also coached the Detroit Pistons for a few seasons, where he became the first African-American coach to be named Coach of the Year in the NBA. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. It's so good to be with you on this beautiful Friday. It's so good to have you on. As I told you, I love the book. And and the thing that I really loved about it was um, you, you, you placed your basketball career in, in the greater context of you know, a lot of things that were going on in society at that time. And that really provided a richness to the book that made it, you know, more than just a basketball book. I I, I like to think so because it was an attempt at, you know, it was kind of some, excuse me, parallel thinking because of the time that I came up, it was a parallel universe. You know, we were, uh, uh, for us as African-Americans, uh, it was segregation, then it was integration. Uh, coming into the 60s, uh, I mean, it was just unbelievable. The changes, it's like someone said, all bets are off. We're just going to create this new society uh, with John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And so we're we're just going forward and we're going forward with civil rights and integration and uh, uh, the end of bus boycotts. And and then it wound up, sadly, uh, in the 60s in, in a war with Vietnam. And so all of that, when you parlay all of that, and then you're saying, I am part of the NBA, which I never thought I'd be part of, uh, which is a professional sports that has appeal to the public at large. You know, as a 22-year-old kid, I'm not thinking that deeply about all of these things going on around me, but they're all going on. You know, that's the way it is with youth. When we're young, we don't stop anything. We just live in it and adjust and adapt. And so I had things in my mind that I would stop and think about because I had just began reading, uh, coming out of college, reading a lot of authors that were favorites. One was Hemingway, and then another was Richard Wright, and another was uh, James Baldwin. So as I started reading these things and looking at writers or reading writers that were kind of uh, predicting what was going to come, and, and then saying, I'm living in that time. You know, these these men are talking about these things or these women are talking about these things, but they're now happening and they're happening on the back of a nation trying to move forward and breaking the chains of enslavement and Jim Crow and all of the. And so, you know, where do I fit Where not only where do I fit, but how do I survive in this? Because what are the rules? You know, we all have to stop and learn what the rules are. And so going into the 60s, that's the thing. No rules. (laughs) All the gloves are off. No rules. And I'm at 22 years old, sitting in a locker room in this league called the NBA. And Paul, I have money in my pocket. 
So I'm not writing a book like as a poor kid from the ghetto that was really struggling to put a, a loaf of bread on a table and trying to buy a hamburger or get uh, a car. Or I, I, I had those things. And I said, my goodness, how quickly that changed. You know, and it, it, but what did it change on the backs of? And and for me, it changed uh, on the life of Emmett Till, the the fourteen year old kid that was mm-hmm. murdered in, in Mississippi, because when he was fourteen, I was sixteen. I was a junior in high school, and I never forgot that. That stayed with me uh, in terms of something being very serious, very important in my life. And it came about because uh, in the uh, black neighborhoods, we had magazines. You know, we didn't have great radio and investigative reporting, but we had things that said, you can see this. We had Jet magazine that com- that said every week as a uh, African-American periodical or as a black periodical, we're going to have something on Emmett Till. And I followed that judiciously. Uh, uh, and there is no conclusion because it goes on still today. But now I'm drafted into a league. They said that they probably would never draft you in to play basketball. So I just played basketball for the love of the game. But now I'm in this league and my view of the world is as a 22 year old kid with a couple of suits in the closet, money in his pocket, and a car in the driveway. Never thinking that any of those things were going to occur at that age. So yeah, that that parallel universe that I was living in. Yeah. I I wanna I wanna ask you a couple things about your childhood. Um, because you know, for all of us, our childhood childhoods are so influential in, in the people we come and the and the way we see the world. Um yeah. You wrote it. You wrote in the book that uh, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, something to the effect that you were poor, but no, but nobody, but you didn't know you were poor. Yeah, yeah. And you hear that a lot from. I've heard that a lot from people of your generation. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's no longer the case. In that, it seems like people who are poor now. I don't know if it's because of of you know, th- there's more media out there and social media and things like that. But mm-hmm. well, for one, I think I think income inequality has actually gotten worse in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another thing, it seems to be in people's faces so much. And I wonder, yeah. I wonder, do you think it's still possible to be poor in this country and not know that you're poor? You know, it's glass half full, glass half empty, I think, uh, because young men like yourselves, like yourself, I'm, I beg your pardon, young men like yourself are really looking to reach ahead. And so when they look at uh, the ordination of where we are as a nation now being poor versus where we were then, their tendency is to look for the good today. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, you know, they'll talk about LeBron James, they'll talk about educational processes, uh, they'll talk about people that have succeeded. They'll talk about President Obama, you know, something we none of us thought we'd ever see. But when they speak of that, they speak of the advent of the country 
but there's a sadness within me in that within me because I I I can't forget the history. And I'm I'm sorry that I can't, but I know that if we don't acknowledge that history and if we don't talk about it, we are doomed to repeat it. And I believe that. Um and I wish that some of our younger people did because I I think they would strive more to change things. I, I you know, and I and I just I, I saw it just in our last election. I was so proud of the young people, the millennials, uh, because here at the University of Michigan, they go had blue. they go blue. They had yeah. numbers of kids that voted. I saw that, yeah. But and so when I think of that, I'm I, I think we're not there and we're not at, at that acclimation point. I think we're at the point of change. And because change lasts a long time, you know, change is not flipping a light switch. That's only for the for the dark room. But for the dark nation, I think we have a lot that we have to work on. And I say that in conjunction with watching basketball. I mean, I was up until one o'clock last night watching basketball, but it doesn't take away the seriousness of the world. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm not at that acclamation point, Paul, where I can say, boy, you know, man, I'm so proud we elected President Obama. When he's, and, and if someone said to me, well, Ray, what do you think was the, the worst thing that happened with President Barack Obama. And I'd say the Tea Party. Yeah. The Tea Party. Because they're still active today. It's just, it, it, they give themselves another name. But in 2008, the Tea Party came into being and they were frightening because it was that branch that I saw from my life in the, in the 40s and 50s, that branch that I saw of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. See, so I, I, that's why I say, but I don't try to take away anyone's thunder if they feel positive and they think those things. But I do have to give them a few facts. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's there. There always seems to be a backlash, right? Every time we make progress, there's some kind of backlash, and yeah. you just got to hope that the the progress kind of outpaces the backlash. I don't, you know, it's it's painful. P- progress is painful. Yes, it is indeed. And that's what I was saying as a kid that, you know, I grew up in in Philadelphia. I went, I started my college years in New York. I was in Brooklyn. You know, when I was when I was 18 years old, I was in Brooklyn. Now, if you want to give someone an education, take them from South Philly and put them in Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, you, what are you? You know, I and and I'm so proud. When I went to New York, I, I went to uh, a, a city a, a city tech at 300 Pearl Street. And I learned how to go from Brooklyn on my own to 210th Street in the Bronx to Gun Hill Road. That's a long way. So, but I learned north to south and going through Manhattan, going through Harlem. I, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't, if I went to Queens, it was just to play basketball. I didn't, you kind of got into Queens and you, and you escaped, you got out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I, and then you go out on the island. You go out on Long Island. Right. But but really, the 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 real 
transitional part of learning New York is going through the village and going through Times Square and going through Broadway and going through Central Park. I, I mean, I absolutely love that edu educational process that I was getting because those are the days I would just get off the subway and just walk, you know, and go to movie theaters. I remember I saw a great Harry Belafonte movie, Island in the Sun. And that was just walking down the street in New York. And it was at a movie theater I'll never forget, I'll never remember, the Orpheum or something. And I said, oh, I'm, I'll go in here and see this movie. Right. And it's like such a great occasion to me as an 18-year-old. Yeah. to be doing something like that. I worked at Cutcher's Country Club in the Porsche Belt. And that was such an education for me. It was in a, a it, it, it's an adoption, but it's an adaptation uh, because you see other cultures and how you, uh, you talk to other people. I mean, those experiences I wanted to share in my book, but I, I, I wanted, as the guy said, I wanted to keep it real but I didn't want to, you know, kind of dress it up and make it something it wasn't. Right. Uh, but man, it was, it, those periods were there. And then there's a, there's a flag flying in New York that says another black man, another Negro was lynched in the South today. You know, how do you, you know what I mean? As a young guy, yeah. how do you it's a lot to, to take in? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was uh, those periods uh, and based on where we are now, when I in my book I quote Bill Russell, and I admire LeBron, uh, but but Bill Russell said I'm still waiting for uh, our, our our great constitutional uh, amendment. All men are created equal. Still waiting on that one. Yeah, and that's what that's what I want. I mean, I want us to see each other. As equals, not not one better than the other, but we got the same problems. How do we solve? Them? Yeah, that's yeah, we're, we're all in this together, right? We're all together. together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I loved. Uh, I, so I grew up in New York. I grew up on Long, uh, Queens and then Long Island. Okay, and I used to go uh, a number of times with my parents and my grandparents. We went up to Kutcher's for the weekend oh. in the spring. Oh, really? I loved it there. And oh. I also. And I'm, I have to tell you, my probably I started laughing when I was reading your book because I'm Jewish. And when you when you recite the Hamotzi, I was yeah. like, I can't, this this 84 year old African American man is reciting the Hamotzi. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow. <laughs> prayer, yeah, it was my prayer. The 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 kids in my high school, West Philadelphia High School, my high school was predominantly Jewish. Okay, and so. The there were no real predominant black schools in Philadelphia growing up, but there were there were the borderline kind of 30, 40, 30, 70, 60, 40. But I remember when I, I transferred from Catholic school, I went to Catholic school for two years, as I as I pointed out in the book. But I, you know, I got I was a minority that got beat up, and I got beat up, Paul, and they blamed me. <laughs> you know, they said. The, 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 I'll never forget this as long as I live. The the priest looked at my mother and said to her, well, you know, he's kind of a bully. At the, and I, that might not be, I may be extracting something, but I remember that feeling. He was saying I was a bully. And I was, and I said to myself, as I'm standing there, I, at that time, I was, uh, I was a 14 year old. 
I was, and I said, I'm the one getting beat up. <laughs> You're telling my mother, you know. So those are the kind of things that was. That's not justice. Yeah. You know, and so I, I, I learned those things, and so I, and and when we talk about New York, because New York certainly had its seedier sides, but New York to me was a a city of cultures that were strong. Uh, and I guess you had to be to survive in New York. You know, you had to have a strong feeling, a strong identification of who you were. I, I knew the Jewish kids had it. I knew the black kids had it. I knew the Caribbean kids had it. I knew the Italian kids. So when I when I put all that together, I was like, wow, this is this is great. You know, this is a great place um, to to grow up. And I and I grew up in uh, uh, in, in those uh, my freshman year uh, in Bed Stuy, in Brownsville. You know, and now they talk about them now like, oh man, they were like these horrible places. I was going like, you got to be kidding me. You know, Bed Stuy at the at the Bedford YMCA. That's where I met Richie Havens. The guys walking through the lobby and they go like, hey Richie, hey Richie. I was like, who's that guy? You know, he's like. Six one, six two, and he's got this big conga drum he's carrying. And we're like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's Richie, you know. And so those those things in New York and Philadelphia of meeting people and and getting from uh, one level of society to the sports or entertainment level and meeting Aretha Franklin and meeting Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston and you know Floyd Patterson. I mean. I, I don't know, and I can say to you, Paul, and this is not in the book, but had I not been a New Yorker in some parts, I don't know that I would have had it in me to meet people like that. I would I probably wouldn't even have known who they were. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Is is New York makes such a presentation of people. And that and 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 as I've gone on and spoken about the book, I realized that was a huge element uh, to growing up, to getting to be you know eighty five years old, and 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 can say to you, well, I I know these people, or I met these people, or I associated with these people. Yeah, that was that was the thing. And then and had the vision of basketball, because again, New York publicized basketball a lot of people don't know that new york really integrated basketball college level ccny nyu long island university schools we don't even talk about anymore right those were schools that 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 had prominent african-american players so you know i write about that in the book because i don't want that history to be lost to us yeah so you know if, if even if my book served as a history book I would be so happy, you know, that young guys like yourself, you could look at it and say, hey, does he say anything in here about Harvey Saltz? Or does he say anything in here about Billy Cunningham or Lenny Wilkins, you know? Right. And, and because they were important guys to us. Yeah. And they shouldn't, they should not be forgotten. Absolutely. I want to go back to to childhood in Philly a little bit because you know mm -hmm. you, you talked to some about you know playing on the playgrounds of Philly, mm -hmm. and there was so much talent 
in Philadelphia coming up in Philadelphia at that time. What was that like to play with to play on those playgrounds? Well, it begins with Will Will Chamberlain. I, I mean, and I say it begins with him because he is the guy that made uh, high school basketball prominent. If you recall, and I'm I'm sure you do, because uh, I'm sure it was in your era, high school sports was a blurb. You know, you got a little bit, little information. They might have mentioned somebody you knew that you sat in class with, and you say, boy, that guy's a great player. Right. Imagine having Wilt Chamberlain come along. This, this, at that, he was, I, I was 14 when I met him. He was 16. He was 6'11", as graceful as a deer, and as fast as a deer, and could literally jump over the basket. Um, he learned to play basketball, and he learned because he, he practiced all the time. He practiced all the time. And uh, I admired him just as a 14-year-old would say, I look up with this guy. And I always tell people, one of my one of the big things my career is graced with because of Wilt Chamberlain is humility. Because he stomped the mud hole in me. You know. <laughs> that guy was unbelievable. You're not the only one. <laughs> yeah, well, that, and I and I take comfort in that. <laughs> but here this guy is, he's 16 years old, and they start writing stories about him in Time Magazine, Look Magazine, Life, because we didn't have TV then. So it was all in what we read, what we ingested, what we discussed in the neighborhood. And people, it amazed me, people in California wanted to know what this this six foot 11, seven foot kid was doing in Philadelphia. And all of a sudden on your sports pages, it became high school sports. Right because we started talking about well and to that was a big thing growing up for kids to be recognized and and I, I I submit to you Paul it wasn't a greater thing in your life than to be 15 16 17 years old and have your name in the newspaper have your picture in the newspaper yeah you know there was no TV there was no really no radio so to speak uh, about sports. But here this guy, Wilt Chamberlain, opened this whole chasm up to where people were speaking of us as kids. And and I, 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 I hope I pass that on because that was so important to the country because this kid was, quote unquote, a Negro. Right. So now there's a step being made to popularize this this person and this game and it it just grew in philadelphia where as kids we would put our little coins together so we could go to we could go to convention hall in new york you guys were going to the garden right you know, the biggest thing when you were a kid in new york that i recalled when i got there was to go to the garden yeah uh, we we had those things well i, I submit that it was will that popularized that. Now, other guys from New York, like Sherman White and Floyd Lane and uh, Ed, Ed uh, I can't think of it, but Ed, uh, Ed Roman, these guys popularized the sport in a major city that sent the news all across America. And so I began to understand that about New York. New York was, was king. Yeah. It was king. And uh, that that 
that growth period as a kid was huge, you know, and and so you don't have the level of sophistication. You know, we're all still drinking orange juice at Needix and getting a hot dog, <laughs> but we have the exposure. Right. And, and I love that. And then uh, Haskell Cohen, who I wrote about, is the guy that brought me up to Cutcher's Country Club. Right. Haskell Cohen was the uh, publicist for the NBA. So he worked for uh, Cutcher's Country Club. So I just stood. He said, hey, I'll bring you the, the players from the NBA up. And that became something big. So again, I'm a kid and I'm saying I'm standing around uh Paul Braun and and uh who was it the uh Dolph Shades, these great players, Paul Arison, and they're at Cutcher's Country Club. Right. You know, and as a kid, it's great. Then we have the neighborhood heroes, you know, Bozo Walker and Puny Bill and those guys that are great neighborhood players. So when you when you intersperse all of that, it's like you're taking this in that what you're doing could be come important, right? You know? but as a kid, and and my primary love as a kid was boxing. No, oh. because my dad, who died when I was eight, my 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 stepdad, he adopted me. Uh, when he adopted me, one of the things that I will never forget. It's we used to sit Friday nights, nine o'clock, Gillette Cavalcade of Sports. From where? Madison Square Garden in New York. So that whole period is somewhat romanticized to me because my dad, he was the love of my life. And so when he, you know, he passed when I was eight years old, that was an unbelievable hole. Yeah. But as a kid, that's how you find basketball. That's how I found basketball. And I was tall and, you know, I I, I liked it. I liked the game. It, it, it seemed to come to me naturally. Um, but as a kid, you're not thinking in those days. Think about a kid today at, this, at that same time. When I was 10 years old and in fifth grade, I was just happy to go out and have recess. Yeah, sure. No, just play ball. Ten-year-olds yeah. today, what are they doing? They're telling you they're going to be Celtics. They're going to be yeah. a leader. They're going to be, you know, Steph Curry. They, you know, it, it's 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 amazing to me how those ears moved, right? Uh, as 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 kids, when you when you talk about uh, the uh, your question is about kids growing up in Philly. It was it was just phenomenal. But I grew up between, I like to think I grew up between Philly and New York. Right. Um, you you took a you took took a pretty unconventional route to the NBA. You know, you talk in your book about how you went off to University of Portland and then and then uh, ended up dropping out of school there and went to the Eastern League. Um, I read a great book a couple of years ago about the Eastern League. I I hadn't known much about it. And mm-hmm. didn't realize how much ta- Sherman White, you mentioned before, he was one guy. You, there was so much talent in yes. the Eastern League. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, what it was like to play in the Eastern League? Yeah, gladly. Um, the East, I was in the Eastern League uh, three years. I was supposed to be there two years. But uh, 1960, the NBA 
wouldn't let me enter the draft. So I didn't enter the draft until 61. But I was in the Eastern League. And when I went there, they they had a guy, they had these these kids because they were, you know, we, we think of them now like as older guys, you know, but they weren't grizzled guys. They were kids. Sherman White, Bill Spivey from Kentucky. He was a seven-footer All-American from Kentucky. Ralph Beard was an All-American from Kentucky. Then they had a guy by the name of Ed Roman. And uh, they had uh, Floyd Payne. Was he CCNY? Was that CCNY? The famous, they won two championships in one year. Right. And then the whole scandal. And the, yeah. But these guys were smeared with the scandal brush. And so, and that was another thing I found out in New York when we talk about that. There was a, uh, what they do today, gambling on on screen and all that stuff. Now, I, I went like they were doing that in New York in 1958. <laughs> <laughs> it was all the bookies, <laughs> but it it, it amazed. But those guys were such great. Another guy was uh, Jack Molinas. Mm. Jack Molinas was an All American at Columbia. Um, you know, those guys played in the Eastern League, and it wasn't for a lot of money. But it, it, uh, the money that they made, most of them became successful working in programs in the in the various cities in Harlem, or in Long on Long Island or boroughs, and and so they would get that money and put it with the Eastern League money, so they would maybe earn a hundred dollars or so on a weekend to go with the 150 they were making during the week. And so that was that was not my primary interest. My primary interest was just to play. I did not go to the Eastern League because I thought I was going to be in the NBA. I went to the Eastern League just to play. And so as things evolved and with playing with those people, now imagine again, I'm in the Eastern League against guys that were cover boys on Sport Magazine and the Sporting News. Um, and uh, they weren't really tele Well, they were televised. I I don't know if you remember, Paul, they used to have a show every week called Madison Square Garden. No, I don't remember. And, and on Monday night was wrestling. I, I can remember it like just the back. Monday night was wrestling. Tuesday night was doubleheader basketball. The Knicks would play, say, the Celtics, and Syracuse would play Philadelphia. And you'd have, and you couldn't get near the place because it was it was packed with fans and gamblers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it would be shocking. You see the Knicks losing a game and being cheered because they beat the spread. Right. <laughs> no, they didn't. No, they, <laughs> And I remember that being a kid sitting there seeing that. Um, but that was a, that Madison Square Garden. Then Wednesday was, uh, I, I think Wednesday was college basketball. So they'd have a college, college doubleheader at the Garden. Thursday was whatever Thursday was, but I remember Friday because Friday was always boxing. So you would get these, this screen and it would always be historical to what had occurred, not what was coming, but what had occurred in Madison Square Garden the previous weeks. 
that was huge. Right. And in fact, if I, if I ever write another book, uh, that would be one that I would I would want to take a look at because there's so much history there. Right. Between the colleges, the professionals, the wrestling, and the boxing, and uh, uh, that was that was so interesting. But as, as, as I, I guess I'm kind of getting into a semi babble here, but. I just, when I t- think about New York and how I grew up there, it was just so much exposure to your senses. So much sense. You know, we had the we had the great plays. I saw Blues for Mr. Charlie there, Pearly Victorious. Uh, what's the hair? The greatest, the greatest of all time. I saw hair in New York. You know, New, it just, it's just a, a phenomenal place of growth for america and for a kid from south philly yeah and then and then of course you you were drafted by the pistons how how did you feel about going to detroit well that's funny when you talk about detroit i i I think i i said it before you know i i'm one of the few guys that ever went to detroit that no one ever knew because draft picks are what they're people you know they're all americans Right. They, they played at this college that, you know, Oscar Robertson or Wilt Chamberlain or Bill Russell, they've, they, they're famous. And right. so when you draft them, you say, boy, we're getting this famous guy coming to our team. Well, imagine Detroit as they say, you're getting Ray Scott from the Eastern League in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And they go, who and what? Where is Allentown? And right. who? And I always told people my name became who? <laughs> Ray Scott. <laughs> and so when I came here in 1961, I was 22 years old. That's that's the way I felt. Nobody, no one knew me. The justification of that, and uh, uh, I, I justified my. I like to think I I played well enough, but when you're playing in front of two or three thousand people, that's not very many. So that's not a broad cut of that community. Right. But I stood in front of 11,000 people in 1974 as the NBA coach of the year. And I just, I never spoke a word. I just said to myself, I think they know who I am now. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the way way it worked. That's the way the the story would unwind. Uh, But when I came, to the Detroit Pistons, they they didn't have a clue. I mean, the team knew because they had scouted me. Right. Um, friend in my who, the guy that became my friend and my mentor, Earl Lloyd, who was the first guy to play, first African American to play in the NBA. He brought me here, and I'm and I and I'll say to Paulie, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm still in Detroit. I I because the people. What they did here for me is they embraced me. So when you you embrace somebody without portfolio, because they don't know anything about me in terms of Allentown Jets or, you know, what I averaged a game or it wasn't important because we don't know you. Yeah. You know, we want somebody. So I don't even know because I was a fourth player pick. One first was Walt Bellamy. Second was Tom Smith from St. Bonaventure. Third was uh, uh, Larry Siegfried from Ohio State. So you know all three of those guys. Right. Where's Detroit? And they say, who do we get? They said, 
We drafted a six foot nine inch guy from the Allentown Jets, Ray Scott. Who? And that's that who? <laughs> <laughs> so you know that that was uh that was the way that it was. That was the and you know, now every kid, you you look at the pomp and circumstance, every kid that's drafted. A, he's going to be a millionaire. B, he's got on a suit that's a size too small for him. <laughs> C, he's towering over the uh, commissioner of basketball. But there's pomp and cert- and he's sitting at a table with 15 people. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm, it's, I, it's I, on TV. And it's on TV. Yeah. I was lucky to get a plane ticket to come out to Detroit. You know, my, my pomp and circumstance, it's in the book, my pomp and circumstance was to be able to order an apple pie a la mode on room service. Right. I love that. Yeah. I knew I made it. I said, hey, I, this is my celebration. And so, you know, that, uh, you know, and I, I, I hope fans get that juxtaposition, you know, of where, yeah. well, this is where I was, and this is what happened in that period. But it, it was so, it was so illuminating because I went to the next level of playing a sport that I love. I wanted to ask you about, um, what was I thinking about? Oh, right. So you, you talked about your love of boxing. Or it was around this time of your life when you were with the Pistons that you that you met and struck up a friendship with uh, the greatest of all time, Mr. Muhammad right. Ali. Correct. Right. And actually promoted boxing in 1966. I had three prime fighters that fought for me on my cards, uh, Hegeman Lewis, Ronnie Harris, who's a, well, Hegeman was, uh, he fought twice for the welterweight championship of the world against Jose Napolis. Okay. Uh, Ronnie Harris was a bronze medal winner from uh, Detroit who fought in the Olympics, who had just fought in the Olympics of 1964. And so I had Ronnie boxing for me. And then there was a heavyweight by the name of Alvin Blue Lewis, who fought Muhammad Ali and oh, became wow. uh, the champs uh, sparring partners. So I was in this uh, environment also. And I just, I was looking for something to do in the off season. And I said, uh, I got some friends together. So why don't we promote, start a club and just promote boxing and have some fun? And uh, I, I had a history of boxing. I mean, I, I, I had met Sugar Ray, I had Sugar Ray Robinson, the Sugar Ray. Right. I had Joe Lewis, uh, Floyd Patterson. Um, uh, who, who else? Archie Moore. Uh, th- there were, because in those days, and you, you know it living in New York, but that's that's always a different animal that any anybody else understands in those days boxing superstars were generally part of the community they lived in the community right you know, same thing with baseball here but when baseball we had willie horton and gates browns great they lived in the community uh right. so they they're meetable you know good people ali was to me a citizen of the world you know, anywhere he was, he was home. Right. Because people, that's how people made him feel. And that was his talent on how relaxed and ease, at ease he made people. But it was, uh, 
boxing was such a uh, exact sport, you know, and I, I I didn't like watching people get beat up. I liked watching skillful people uh, and 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 being able to to move those muscular bodies the way that they did. Um, it, it was always something to see. This this almost in our lexicon, this perfect human being. You know, they were on average from five seven to six two, and they weighed between the really great attractive fighters were 140 pounds to 200 pounds. Right. And so guys like that, it was it, it was quite admirable to watch because it was equal. Right. It was a 135 pounder against a 135 pounder. Um, so that always intrigued me. And I love that part of uh, of boxing. And I and I loved I loved fighters because they were always so bare. Mm-hmm. You know, a fighter does he can't hide anything. Yeah, he hide his intellect. He can't hide his skill. There's no no fake. Everything, uh, everything you see is everything you get. And so I just I, I fell in love with it. And in fact, um, uh, uh, Charlie Rosen, my partner. We're writing another book now. We're we're writing a book called Boxing in Black and White. Oh, and we wow. show how boxers went from being segregated again to coming into these major uh, you know, Ali and and uh and uh, Frazier were the first major guys that got five million dollars. I I I know five they got a lot of money, but they didn't get the five million dollars was uh, in uh when when Ali fought uh, Foreman, they made five million dollars apiece. That was the biggest person boxing, and it was made by two African Americans in a sport that they weren't even, you know, a uh, hundred years ago they wouldn't have been allowed to participate in. Yeah. So we tried to tell that story and show how those guys uh, became uh, sellable to the community at large and. Uh, beginning with Jack Johnson, who violated every social construct you could violate. <laughs> and I say that proudly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but Jack Johnson uh, caused us to uh, be shut out again for right. a long time. So I, we, we're going to give you that history and that background. Right. Well, I look forward to that. We'll have to talk again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, um, so you had you had you had a great you know nine year career in the NBA, um, yes. and and then afterwards you you spent a couple of years in the ABA. I wonder how 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 do those two leagues compare? Uh, well, you can't compare because first of all, those two leagues had completely different constructs. If you think of the NBA in the period that I was there, and which would say until nineteen seventy when I was there and even upon leaving. But when I was there, the construction of the league was Chamberlain, Russell, Kareem, and and uh, 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 Chamberlain, Kareem, and George Mikan. Right. George Mikan was the original. Um, 
And so the game is built around their skill level and things that they could do. It wasn't, they weren't concentrating on Bob Cousy or Bill Sharman or uh, Richie Guerin. They were concentrating on big guys because it was the big man's game. Um, that was how the NBA built itself. The ABA built itself on the little man, quote unquote, shooting three-point shots, scuttling around, violating all the rules of basketball. And, and it is is a thing in basketball called a fast break. And the, and the purpose of the fast break is to get a layup, to lay the ball in under the basket. That's the purpose of the fast break. Get the ball three on two, two guys play me, the other guy is open, he gets the layup. That's the purpose and fundamental of basketball. The NBA, ABA said, screw that. Mm-hmm. We're going to go with what we have called a three-point shot. We're gonna go with the red, white, and blue basketball. We're gonna go with dancing girls. We're gonna go with lots of music, lots of shows, and we're gonna sell this. And for 10 years, I thought I thought they were gonna be incredibly successful. I actually thought the two leagues would eventually merge. And so we would see how that would play out. You know, little guys shooting three-pointers and Wilt and Kareem and, you know, the Skyhook and all that stuff. And it, it it didn't come to bear, and, and sadly. But the NBA, looking at what the ABA had, began to cherry-pick stuff that they did that brought people to the stands. Now, I was fortunate when I went into the ABA to play my first year with Charlie Scott, New Yorker, uh, one of the great uh, players, Hall of Famer, uh, my first year. And in the second year, I got to play with Charlie Scott and Dr. J, Julius Irving. So I got to look at the league from their purview of athleticism, speed, uh, dunking ability, mm-hmm. point shooting. So it made the game much more entertaining, entertaining, but a lot less fundamental. Right. But what I saw was the hand of television said, this is what people love. And I found it out, Paul, because my wife, Jennifer, never really sat and watched basketball with me. Mm -hmm. When we started watching ABA games in the way that the uh, the Steph Currys of the world mm-hmm. sit and watch the whole game, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, it's entertainment." Yeah, guys dunking the ball, guys shooting those long three point shots. Not all that intricate backdoor down screen, come off the double pick. There right. was none of that stuff. Right, it was pure entertainment. And so the game we have today with the LeBrons and the, the Kobe Bryant's, they were they were just great entertainers. Yeah. They weren't seven footers, but they were they were exquisitely talented. And I think they have just cut a new path for basketball, which we as the older generation will have to get used to. <laughs> but the younger generation, they love it. Yeah. They love it. So it, it's it's been interesting to watch that development. Right. Absolutely. 
And then, of course, after after your two years in the ABA, uh, you very quickly moved into coaching uh, with the Pistons and and under your your old friend and mentor Earl Lloyd. And then, I mean, it had to be shocking that just seven games into the season, all of a sudden you're the head guy, and you you have you have really no coaching experience. And it, it had to be. I I would think it had to be emotional and a little conflicting as well because you were because you had this, this dear friend, someone you liked and respected so much, was losing his job just seven games into the season, which is crazy. And and you were replacing him. So how how did that feel to to become the head coach of the Pistons? Oh, it was it was. I I I, I never when I'm asked that question, I, I it it never brings about a good feeling. Mm. It never does. My good feeling comes from knowing that I completed the course that Earl and I were setting out. That when, I, as his assistant, I said, I said, Duke, here's some things I think we need to do. And he listened to me. Mm -hmm. I listened to him. I mean, because he always gave me great advice great insight but to, to in that room if you wanted to be in the room where it happened it was in portland oregon third floor general manager comes to town i go into my coaches my head coach earl lloyd i go into his room paul and he hasn't unpacked his clothes mm. i said duke you haven't unpacked your clothes he said well when er, when uh, uh, Mr. Coyle comes, you know, I'm going to be fired. I said, you got to be kidding. He said, Ray, general managers don't go on the road to see how the team is doing. <laughs> and when they come on the road, somebody's in trouble. And since I'm the head guy, not you, I think it's me. So I said, oh, okay. Well, so I didn't unpack my bags either. So, <clears throat> but the meeting, uh, the, the meeting came about and we go into the room and it's a suite, and we sit down in the big chairs. And so Mr. Coyle said, Earl, you know, and he he really liked Earl a lot, a lot. Earl Earl was a favorite in Michigan. He, he to this day, he died, and he's still a favorite in Michigan. Uh, and in and, and a lot of parts of the world, they've got statues to him down in, uh, uh, down in uh, Virginia, where he grew up, in Alexandria. Wow. They got a statue. They have one in the in the gymnasium there at West Virginia State. He's he's just a great guy. Right. And he as and he should have. I sit down with Earl and I'm with him. And so Mr. Coyle says, I'll cut to the chase. Earl, Mr. Zollner said he wants to make a change in the coaching situation. You're out. And I said, Oh gosh, we I lost my job. That I lost my job in seven games. <laughs> Because I was working for the Virginia Squires in the front office, right? And I come to Detroit. I'm like, okay, so I don't, I don't, I'm not even thinking about what I'm going to do. I'm sure Mr. Foreman probably would have taken me back in Virginia, but at any rate, I'm sitting there, and my best friend's getting fired, and so I'm just sad, man. Oh man, you know, and and I'm and I'm with it. Right. And so, and so Mr. Coyle turns and says, but Ray, Mr. Zollner said he wants you to coach the team. And I said, what? I said, I can't do that. I don't, you know. And Earl Lloyd turned to me and he said, Ray, you got to take this job. You better take this job. And I didn't know at the time, but what he was saying was, this is my way of taking care of you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I, I'm just like, I don't know what. 
so I said, so we sit and we talk a little bit and I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Earl. You know, I've done what he told me to do so far and I've been successful. So I said, okay, Earl. So I take the job and of course we leave Mr. Coyle's room and we go back to our rooms. I went back to unpack Earl went back to get ready to fly back to Detroit. And I said, Earl, I said, what should I do? You know, the players, I got a paper here, stuff I want to try to come up with. I said, what should I do? He said, well, you want to get your players and you want to get the players and talk to them, explain to them, talk about what's happened. Because like anything else, you know, the players got the word right away. Right. So I said, okay. And I said, I got a problem. And he said, what's that? I said, I don't even know where they are. That's the hotel. And so I said, come here. I looked out the window. And we looked out the window, and all the players were walking down the street as a group. Past, I don't know if it was past curfew, but they certainly weren't in their hotel rooms. And I said, boy, I really got a job to do. I had no idea. So I went to the room, and I started making notes and writing stuff out. And I remember saying okay, what's one of the most important times with your players as a coach? Halftime. If you're up, you have to try to maintain that level. If you're down, you got to try to catch up. Mm -hmm. So what do you say? What do you do? And I said, I don't know what the heck to say. I'm not, I never even thought I was going to be a coach. So I started writing down notes judiciously and I was writing halftime speeches whether it was down or whether we were up. <laughs> and I just, I, it just, that's how it started. And I just, it wasn't like I've been promoted or I feel good. I didn't even have a contract. I, I don't think for another two or three weeks. Well, wow. Yeah. We didn't even have a contractual talk. Right. Um, and then when we had the contractual talk, Paul, they offered me to be the interim until the end of the year. Well, now I've wet my teeth. I mean, I've, I've got my feet wet. I've gotten into the coaching. I said, I said, Mr. Coyle, absolutely not. I said, I can't be a coach. If you want me to coach this group of guys, I can't coach them till the end of the year. You have to come out and say, you're going to, Ray's going to coach this year and he's got a contract for next year. Mm-hmm. You have to, I have to have a, a two year contract because the players are never going to listen to me if they know that I'm, They'll go do. They'll be partying every every game, you know. Ladolfo Vida. I said, if the players are going to listen to me, and I'm going to get their attention, the way Mr. Zollner came and told me, that's what he wanted me to do, to bring harmony. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to have their have some security. And he said, okay, I'll talk to Mr. Zollner. And he came back and said, that's perfect. And uh, so we. That team, by the end of the year, we won 20 of our last 30 games. And I could see on the horizon things that Earl and I had talked about doing. One was initiating a move to get more talented players on our bench. You know, a lot of teams do, some teams don't. But I believe in the, in professionally, you win with talent. And I said we needed more talent. And we went out and we got we got Don Adams, John Mingill, and uh, George Trapp. And that's what made me coach of the year, those kids. So I had an idea 
about things once I got into it because I had played with Julius. I had played with Dave Bing. I had played with Earl Monroe. And I said, you win in this league with talent. Right. You know, if you don't have talent, you're not going to. And that's the same thing was happening in New York when they got Frazier, Bradley, DeBusher, Reed, and uh, um, uh, Bill Bradley. Oh, Reed and Barnett. Right. And then later, and then later, the Pearl. Yeah, and then well, yeah, it was interchangeable. Right. Pearl made himself just as valuable as Dick Barnett. Right. Because remember, Clyde was still the man. (laughs) Always that guy. So that, but I that interested me in studying basketball. It always comes down to the players and the talent that you have. You win with talent. The reason Golden State's not winning today. The Warriors are not winning because they don't have the talent. Right. They got they got maybe three, maybe four players. Not after that, there's a sharp drop off in talent. Yeah, yeah. I, I I like systems and all that stuff. Systems don't win. Players win. Yeah. Got to have the talent. But at any rate, that was uh, uh, the the thing with Earl and and how we marched into the coaching area of of basketball and and what did it what did it mean to you to to be the first african-american coach to be named coach of the year everything everything um because i knew frank robinson who was in baseball uh he was a manager right there were no football coaches no african-american football which is that's a shame to say but there were there were none there still aren't many (laughs) yeah they're, they're not they're not knocking that door down, are they? Yeah. Um, so Frankie Rob, uh, Larry Doby uh, managed a little bit, um, but they n- never had a coach of the year. Right. So when they said that, because, and I have to tell the truth, guys in the NBA helped me, and got coaches in the Cotton Fitzsimmons, Bill Fitch, uh, there were no well Bill Russell was a player coach. Bill was gone. Uh Bill was a player coach. Al Adels was a player coach with the Warriors. And Lenny hadn't started yet. He started by the next year. But the the thing, Paul, was, you know, when you study history, you go like, this has never happened before. And hurtfully, uh, because the Pistons sold the team, it never was a big deal that I was a coach of the year with the Detroit Pistons. It became that way eventually over a 30-year, after 30 years. But when I was a coach of the year, it was never a big deal. Right. I just got this humongous trophy, and the satisfaction was self-satisfaction that I had shown or proven to Detroit right? and acclamation to Detroit for us being a good team and being in the playoffs battling the dreaded Chicago Bulls who I said were our arch enemies and who Dick Mata said, I don't know anything about arch enemies with Detroit. He's on a Milwaukee Bucks with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But I, I had read that somewhere. If you don't have an arch enemy in sports, create one. Mm. You know, like the Dodgers and the Giants were arch enemies. Right. Oh, 
so I remembered those things. I said, it's a create one. I said, who do we have? So I said, the Bulls. And that and that existed, it exists to this day. Yeah. That the don't care for the Chicago Bulls and Chicago Bulls hate Detroit. The Detroit. Right. I started that. <laughs> so, <yeah>. <laughs> and Mata said, and they said to Mata, they said, Mata, how do you feel, man? You you gotta play your arch travels, the Detroit Pistons. He said, What? Oh yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> I not they said they they're not our arch enemies, our arch enemies are the Milwaukee Bucks. That's funny. Bobby Dandridge and those guys. That's I, you know, and I just said, well, we got it started and with Van Leer and I said, Van Leer and Sloan. I said, my my Bing and Mingelt and Ford and 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 um Stuart Lance, they're gonna kill him. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, because they had Butterbean Love and Chet Walker. You know, they had all Yeah, stuff. great team, yeah. Great team. Oh, man. But it was I, – I, I, I still – the look that I saw on Mata's face, I still love to this day. <laughs> but we, we – they only – in seven-game series, they beat us by two in the seventh game on their floor. Yeah. And they got it closer than that. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. Yeah. So you, I, I, um, you know, you mentioned there, there were a couple of managers in baseball. There was no one in football, you know, African-American coaches and, and just a few in, in the NBA. Did you feel, did you feel pushback as, as, as a, as an African-American coach? Did you feel any tension in that sense in the locker room from the front office, from the media? Was that, was that ever an issue that you were aware of? No, I, I, I just, I think the way they handled it was, I, I, I remember Bill Fitch telling me, he said, I'm voting for you for coach of the year. So they're obviously among our group, Fitch and Cotton and uh, the, the various coaches. And remember, we were a nine-team league. Right. You know, we weren't like 18, 20, 30. You know, we were just a very small uh, league. Um, but guys supported each other. We went to dinner together. We had a drink or two together. So I, I always I always admired that about the NBA, that that was one of the things that I was trying to bring out in the book, is the NBA, they had a way, they encountered a problem but when they encountered the problem, they would talk about it. They would try to work with it, and and I and I I always admired that. Even that that was one of the things that I wanted to to come out in the book. That if the if our federal government handled things the way the NBA did, look at where the NBA grew. They, for instance, for instance, and this is an example of how I see the NBA. The NBA in 1947, when they started, was it was segregated. By 1950, they were integrated. And this was not a bellwether time of, of uh, this was not the 60s. Right. This is the 50s. This is, this is when uh, Eisenhower was, was building the great interstates. So we didn't look at ourselves as included in the thinking of America, but it seemed to me 
baseball kind of kicked open the door with Jackie Robinson in 1947 when they started the NBA. Right. And the NBA came in behind the Jackie Robinson piece and they didn't integrate for three years, but it was only, I, I say it this way, it was only three years that they ad, ad, adhered to such a vile rule. But if you look at the problems that the NBA has suffered, and we bring it up to the George Floyd murder, look at how the NBA and the WNBA rallied in America to seek justice for George Floyd. Yeah. And I, and I say, that's it. The NBA had 17 years after I was coach of the year. It was 17 years before another black man was. They got a black man in, Don Chaney, and now there's been 10 or 11 African-American coaches of the year. Coaches of the year. So I think the NBA learns. That's, that's my evidence. Right. They learn, and they meet, and they want to get better. Yeah, and they're far ahead of all the other leagues in terms of African American coaches and and even front office as well. They've they've come a long way. Yes. So yes. yeah, um, I'm going to ask you one last question, Ray. I could talk to you for hours. I, I'm I'm enjoying this so much, and I just want to say again, uh, the name of Ray's book is "The NBA in Black and White: The Memoir of a Trailblazing NBA Player and Coach." And I think you could tell from this podcast that uh, Ray is a great storyteller, and he has a lot of great stories to tell. So it makes for a very entertaining, enjoyable book. Um, I'm going to get you out of here with one final question, Ray, that I like to ask all my guests. And that is, what is your all-time favorite sports book? Hmm. My all-time favorite sports book. Uh, I I would say, they, they because they made it a television series, or not a television series, a television show. I'm sorry. Willie Mays. Okay. And Willie Mays, because when you're young and you can be astounded, he was astounded. Um, um, I, I, I love Hank Aaron, what he brought from Alabama. Um, I, I, I'm, I love Don Newcomb. I love the history of baseball. Um, but, and, and I love Jackie Robinson's story. But the reason I love Willie's story is that there was no sophistication around Willie. Willie was a kid, and a lot of people don't remember this. He went 0 for 24 in New York. Literally his first month. I didn't know that. 0 for 24. Wow. And he was upset because he said, Mr. Stoneham's going to get rid of him. Leo DeRocha, the manager's going to cut him. And Leo DeRocha said, I'm going to I'm going to add this off. And Leo DeRocha got in his car and he drove up to Willie's apartment in Harlem and he sat Willie down. He said, Willie, I'm going to tell you something. Here's the deal. You haven't hit. You're going to hit. But let me tell you something. As long as I have a job as the manager of the New York Giants, you have a job as a center fielder. Willie started hitting the next day. <laughs> wound up batting 274 that year, his first year. Then he went into the military. A lot of people don't know. We we talk about Ted Williams going into the military. We don't talk about Willie Mays losing, hitting 660 home runs and spending two years in the military. Yeah. So I I, I like that 
uh, introspection of Willie Mays. And the reason why, Paul, is that he was only 21 years old. See, Jackie was 27. Right. Willie was 21. He was just a baby. Yeah. And I I just loved reading about that development as a person that Willie Mays had. And he, to me, is the greatest. Someone said to me, who's the greatest baseball player you ever saw? I said, I didn't see the babe. Right. Because I think the babe... Overall, because the guy that knocks down the wall, that's that's the Samson. Willie Mays knocked the wall down. I mean, uh, Babe Ruth. But Willie Mays, in my opinion, eyeballing that guy. Right. That's the greatest baseball player I've ever seen. And it's true. You know, there's something about the magic of youth, right? I mean, for me, in basketball, I, they were, they were, I, LeBron is fantastic. There, no one will ever surpass Michael Jordan for me because that was – he was the star of my childhood. He was the guy that opened my eyes and was like, wow, like human beings can do this kind of thing, right? Like that's, and you can live, you can live 500 years and, and, and you'll never, no one will ever, you know, be as awe inspiring to you as Willie Mays was. Right. And it's the magic of youth. It's just a, and he was a kid, you know, he's playing stickball in the street with the kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's taking the kids for ice cream. Yeah, he's, he's just I, 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 and a very just a very small thing about Willie Mays and that youth that we're talking about, Paul. He takes the, like these dozen kids to get ice cream after they played stickball. That's the kind of guy he is. Right, there's a kid in front of him with an ice cream cone, and he's just a neighborhood kid. And you know how the the dip could fall. Yeah. Willie Mays took the cone from the kid. He ate some of the ice cream to study. And I just said, that tells you everything you want to know about him. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. You know, just that one, you know, Ali has instances like that. Sure. You know, where they they just touch someone's life just for one instant. Right. One instant. Willie Mays had that in my opinion. All right. Well, Ray, thanks again so much for coming on and doing this podcast. I'm, I'm glad we could make it work after our our technological difficulties, but uh, this, this was really great. Well, our fans will never know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs>